the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 443 for Sunday, March 31st, 2013. Greetings, folks, and welcome. To the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Up, the show where you send in your questions, tips, and cool stuff found. We answer your questions, we share your tips, we love cool stuff found, just like we did last week. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fearful, Connecticut, John F. Braun. Indeed. Uh, so, you know, John, um, I, I woke up this morning and, uh, and I realized it's a, it's a very special day. But I, I went to Google and they didn't recognize that it was this special day at all. And I was totally irate. Did you know that, John? Of course, the, the no. special the special day I'm referring to is obviously that it's World Backup Day. <laughs> I didn't know that. It is. Yeah. So uh, so one of the things we'll talk about today during the show, we I mean, our, listen, John, you and I talking about our our backup strategies is is certainly not an event that we reserve to, to talk about only annually. We talk about it frequently, but but I, I believe at some point during today's show, we should go through our our backup strategies and uh, and all of that. So so be, being that it is World Backup Day, it's just good to build awareness because I certainly believe in this. So. And I got to say, Dave, uh, short of you, maybe after you buy a new Mac, wondering what this thing called time machine is that, that has, or I don't, you know, I don't even think it, it, it encourages you to use it when you first get the machine. It's just kind of there because I just got a, I think I told you I got a new uh, 21 and a half inch iMac at work. And uh, while setting the machine up, I don't believe at any point it said, oh yeah, by the way, you want to set up time machine? Uh, it's positive. It did not prompt me to do that. No, it, it prompted it would, me to do some other things, but it didn't explicitly say, oh, by the way, is this thing called time machine? You want to, you want to. Right. Uh, it will only do that. If you plug an external un, uh, yes. external drive in, then, then the first time you do that, it says, Hey, 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 you want to use this as a time machine destination. That's Correct. Right. But out of the box, if you don't have uh, additional external storage, it will not prompt you. And maybe they should change that, but we'll maybe. talk about it a little later. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, you know, let's uh, let, let's start with a, a little audio tip and see see where we go with this show. Hey, John, Dave, and Pilot Pete. This is Anthony from the Bronx. This little tip I found. While using 1Password, I wanted to print all my uh, logins and information just to have a look at it, but I didn't want to print an actual document. I wanted to print it as PDF. So, like with anything, when you go to print all, you come up with the normal print dialog in Mac OS X. And I'm using Mountain Lion right now, so I'm not sure if it's effective on Snow Leopard and all. But when you go to the print dialog, and instead of printing it, you, you put save as PDF. In that next screen, there's a little button that says security options. If in that security options, you can actually add a password to lock the PDF from even being opened. Or you could put a separate login for it to even be copied, pasted, printed, or anything else. So I found that is a very useful tip when I want to look at my passwords, but to review them to make sure I don't have duplicates running around. And at the same time, I don't want people just opening the document because that would, you know, pretty much prove the whole system invaluable. <laughs> but uh, 
Thanks. You can cut me off here. And cut you off we shall, Anthony. That's a good tip. It's, uh, you know, security and all that's a, a good thing, I suppose. That is awesome. You know, that would have been a better choice than what I did for the longest time, Dave, which, which is, is to use stickies, <laughs> which as far as I know, I mean, I, mean, I was yeah. using it. Because it was like virtual post-it notes, which, you know, well, some people actually, uh, based on what I've seen, <laughs> do put their passwords on post-it notes. Some are on the monitor, some are under the keyboard. All right, that that's better. <laughs> <laughs> but um, as far as I know, there is no way to secure stickies. Oh. Like stickies are... Uh, Oh, no, I'm thinking about uh, like one password where I have secure notes in there, which is also really. Oh, you do bring up. I'm sorry. We're already on a tangent here, but I think it's, it's important. Okay. So so stickies does not have any security that I'm aware of. Um, but if you go to oddly enough, keychain access, Dave, now you may mm-hmm. be saying, John, you're crazy. What does keychain access have to do with stickies? And what it has to do with stickies is that there is a category in keychain access called secure notes and it looks kind of like a sticky yeah and it's basically a facility now probably at first you're like why do they put in keychain access well probably because it involves the use of a password that goes somewhere in the keychain right (laughs) right right so um so if you'd like to have notes that are more secure than the average bear uh keychain access is one place you can do it but i like the locking of the file that's a that's a good uh good uh good strategy there all right, so I'm going to jump totally around here, John, because you brought up being Go. more secure than the average bear, and I mentioned 1Password. So uh, there is this thing, and Google's been doing it for a while. Apple re- recently introduced it for their stuff, and, and, it, and Facebook's been doing it, called two-factor authentication. And I finally went and enabled it on, uh, on all of my Google accounts this week. And it's actually pretty cool. If, I mean, for those of you that know what it is, you'll know what it is, but for those of you that don't, the idea is one factor authentication is you entering a password in. Now, the thing is, if John uh, knows my password, of course, John, then you can get in to whatever account you want to get into of mine. Uh, so adding a second factor is a good thing. Now, we're not doing retina scans yet, but since most of us have cell phones, that's what Google uh, has chosen to use. And that's what a lot of these places, Facebook and, and also Apple um, are using your cell phone. So you set this all up. And then when I log in from a computer that I haven't logged in from before or, or haven't authenticated properly, uh, it sends a text message to my cell phone with a six digit code that I also have to enter. So I have to know my password factor one. And, and then this on the fly on demand code that's sent to my cell phone factor two. And then, and only then does it let me in. And I do a cool thing because uh, they also create I created a, a list of 10 uh, anytime use codes, but they're only one time uh, use each. So if for whatever reason, the text message doesn't make it through and I still need to get in, if I have this list of 10 or however many I haven't used, I can put in one of those codes instead of what it just texted me and it'll let me in. And then at any time I can generate a new list of uh, of 10. So uh, so it actually works pretty well. And and then, John, also for for like applications like, say, iOS mail that don't support Google's OAuth yet and, and you can't do the two factor authentication, you actually go into Google and say, I need to create an application specific password and uh, and it creates a password that it shows you once and you use that and one place. So I have a separate Google password just for my iPhone mm-hmm. and I can deactivate that password any, at any point in time. 
but uh, but it certainly makes it more secure. And so that was, you know, that was pretty cool. So I, I figured I'd mention it. Have you done? And, and then there's something I want to talk about with Apple's two, two factor authentication. But have you done this on Google or Facebook or any of these places that allow it, John? Um, I think I do have on some of my Google accounts. Uh, they have asked. Oh, by the way, as a as a backup, uh, you know, authentication means what's your cell phone number? So I don't actively when I'm logging in, I don't use uh, and and just to step back a little bit here, what we're talking about here is something known as multi-factor or I guess two-factor authentication. Yeah. And the three factors are as follows. Um, the one thing Dave mentioned, uh, something the user, know, something you know, which is a password that's stored in your brain, right. something that you have, and that's where we were talking a physical token, like a cell phone or another that some people may have used as something called a secure ID, which is a little... Uh, yep dongle that you carry around and it has a number and unless you have the dongle with the number on it you can't get in and then of course the third thing which they've uh, hinted at is something that you are which is uh, typically biometrics whether it be a fingerprint or a retina scan or whatever so the best authentication should require you to do all three of those but then it can be kind of a pain in the neck right so two factors is certainly better than one factor yes oh way better way better yeah yeah. So with so someone would have to steal your cell phone now <laughs> in order to impersonate. You. They would have to steal my cell phone and know my password. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, OK, you know, I guess I guess these days that's not all that difficult since we all have our cell phones on us all the time uh, for the most part. But uh, so I went to do so I did this with Google and I did it for a couple of days and thought, OK, this is I can live with this. You know, there's, I had to as with everything related to security, security, increased security, security, uh, it has an inverse relationship to convenience. So if I wanted Uber convenience, I would have absolutely no factor authentication. I would simply say I'm Dave Hamilton and Google would show me everything that, uh, that they had. Now that's not good because that means any of you could say I'm Dave Hamilton, right? So, uh, so, you know, we've, we've now gone a little bit down on the convenience ladder and a little bit up on the security ladder and that's, that's okay. So I figured, well, let me set this up on my Apple account. Um, and, and for, uh, for the record, uh, my Google and Apple accounts, I started using long before I started using one password. So I actually had the same password for both of these accounts. Yeah, I know you're not supposed to do that, but whatever. So uh, I'd never been compromised. So, you know, it didn't, it didn't hurt all that much. But when I went to enable two factor for Apple uh, on Friday, they said, you have to have a more secure password to begin with, which sort of made me scratch my head. Like, why do you now care so much about my password if we're also going to be doing this other thing? But okay, fine. So I changed my reluctantly changed my password, which means my iTunes purchases and all that stuff that I'd sort of become ingrained in me, but I changed it. and It's not so bad. And then they said, okay, now you have to wait three days. You just changed your password. You can't enable two-factor authentication uh, for three days now that you've changed it because just in case your account was compromised, uh, you, you know, you, we're going to protect you against that. So I can't enable that till tomorrow, which is Monday. But um, so we'll see how that goes. We do have a tip, though, John, about, uh, about two-factor authentication with, uh, with Apple IDs. And, and I'm going to I'm going to share that at some point here. I can do it now. Or if you've got a, a comment about all of this again, I can I can wait. That's up to you, John. Well, if it flows, you might as well. Uh, well, all right. It. it seems very timely why it's all happening now. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so um, 
so John, a listener, John writes uh, in the news. I read that Apple had introduced two factor authentication. I came across a slight problem. I have two Apple IDs, one for iCloud and another for store purchases. It doesn't look like find my iPhone plays nicely in a situation with two IDs. So I wasted some time revisiting the old, can I merge my Apple IDs or even how do I use two factor authentication with two Apple IDs with the usual lack of success. However, I did find a solution that's not ideal, but kind of achieves what I want. 99% of my purchases have been through my non-me.com ID. So that's the one I must keep. My me.com account has my Apple forums, level four, whatever, emails, calendars, etc. It occurred to me that whilst I could lo- would lose my forum level, I can move data such as emails, calendar events, etc. to my non-me.com ID. I do pay for iCloud storage, but I guess I can downgrade and sign up for more on the other ID. I've logged into my nonme.com ID and created a new at iCloud email address there. Obviously, there are some compromises with this approach, but it does offer me a way of finally moving to a single Apple ID. It seems that Apple's suggestion of having separate IDs for iCloud and App Store slash iTunes is also a bit of a compromise. I've fallen into the trap of accidentally buying content under the wrong ID, setting up new devices with the wrong ID. So I think it's worth it for the short worth the short term pain for the long term gain. So there you go. That's uh, that's that. I, 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 I'm curious to see how this goes with two factor auth on one and not having it on, on the other. And uh, because I have we, we have two accounts for store purchases, but uh, we'll see how it goes. So thanks, John. It's good stuff. So there we are. Uh, you want to you want to jump to Joseph here, John? Are we are we done with this particular tangent? Does anybody in the chat room have anything to say about this? Let me let me scan the chat room. I'll say hello to everybody in the chat room at uh, at macgeekab.com slash stream. We've got quite a full group this morning, especially considering the uh, that it's early Sunday morning and it's a, a holiday for many. So thanks for joining us. Anything, John? From Joseph, here we go. Go! Hi. (laughs) I just had to restore my iPhone due to a slightly botched firmware update as I had VMware running a Windows machine, and when the phone rebooted, it tried to connect to the PC rather than the Mac that was doing the update. Ooh. Hmm. Where are you here, John? Where would, uh... Uh, Joseph? Okay. Are we looking at different... Emails here? Oh, no. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, you're right. Go. No, what I was just saying here is that the first part of this is based on the last I use VMware. It typically comes up and says, hey, I see a USB device. So who, who, who gets it? Yeah, okay. Maybe you're in, you're in a that. different spot. Your, your thing had discussed it. Oh, never mind. No, I see where you're going. Keep going. Go. Or I think I, I pulled up a, a different version of the email. Yes, exactly. Then you packaged them lately. Anyways, when I had it restored from the backup I'd taken, the iPhone downloaded all 1,000 of my emails again and not wanting to tap each one to mark it as red, I went to Google a solution and found the following. I can, uh, I'll put the link in the show notes. You keep reading. Oh, great. Okay. And so here's a way to do that. So you just want to pass along here and uh, we'll uh, summarize what the uh, tip tells you. But basically what you do is you start up and you open the mail app and tap the edit button. And then what you do is follows. And it's certainly not intuitive. And I don't know if it's actually like a little bug, but here's what you do. So you select one message. Once you select a message, you'll then see some uh, buttons appear at the bottom of the screen. Then what you want to do is press and hold the mark button. And then I think this is the important part while still pressing and holding the mark button, tap the email that you just selected to unmark it. 
then release the mark button and tap the mark as red button. And apparently what you're doing is you're putting it in a state where, yeah, nothing is selected, but uh, apparently it does mark them all as red. So yeah, I would have never thought to do this. <laughs> no, it's, it's really smart. Yeah. And I think it was an accident that somebody just stumbled across this uh, <laughs> finger fumble and uh, turned into a tip. Yeah, it's a it's a good finger fumble tip. I like that. Yep, absolutely. All right, uh, jumping around randomly here. I'll go with another tip. Um, this is one of these. You know, we share a lot of stuff that's like this. Actually, probably more than we even realize we share, John. But these, this is one of those things that when I heard it, I thought, man, I don't need to know this now. But the day that I need to know this is absolutely the day that I want to know because I don't want to have to hunt for the solution like this poor guy did. So with that in mind, uh, yet another John writes, uh, after not being able to log into iMessage on my Retina MacBook Pro on my latest plane flight, I'm getting multiple errors about how I couldn't attach to the server and register. I spent a few hours of good Google foo. It turns out that you can't sign into iMessage from a Mac if there isn't a valid serial number coded to the motherboard. I had the motherboard replaced by Apple about two weeks ago for a port problem and Apple Care covered it. But it turns out that they forgot to code the system serial number into the new motherboard. Uh, and that is what was causing my login issue. A three minute talk with the genius at the Apple store and that got them to code it properly. Uh, I have used the blank board serializer software, but it wouldn't boot with the new EFI. Turns out they don't have separate software anymore. Now, when they boot their workbench diagnostics at the genius bar, it requires the serial number to be coded or it won't run. So the question I ask is that wasn't really answered with more than a nervous chuckle is, does this mean that they replaced the motherboard and failed to run diagnostics before returning it to me? Well, it probably does. But thanks for that tip. That's a good little thing to for us to file away and uh, and know. So you got to if, if that happens, of course, you just got to go back to the genius bar. But yeah, when they replace your motherboard, they do. They put it in and then they code it with the serial number, which is which seems totally backwards. But um, but that's that's how that process works. So if it doesn't have a serial number, no go. And I perhaps that's a anti theft thing. I, I don't know, whatever it is. But anyway. I don't know why. I guess they do that for, I don't know why they would do that, but that's what, that's what they do, John. Why they, what, wouldn't program the serial number? No, why they, why iMessage requires a serial number to run. Um, yeah, I don't know. It could be just some piece of the code that someone left in there. Right. Right. Never, never thought that they'd, yeah, I mean, this happens a lot. I mean, it could have been left in there and the assumption was, well, you know, every machine has a serial number. So, so yeah, what's the problem <laughs> until you come across And I've had that happen with my code too, is where, you know, a lot of the, you know, you, you have something in your code that you check for a condition and then all of a sudden something in the hardware changes yep. and all of a sudden your code doesn't work anymore. Yep. That's right. It's, yeah. It's another hardware problem. Okay. You know, I think I'd like to jump all the way almost to the end, Dave here, because I think this is timely and that go. it's the same way here. Uh, and Andreas. Yeah, go. Okay, you think you think this kind of fits in? Well, I think it does. So, so we're going to do I'm it. Just gonna, I'm just going to forge ahead here. So, Andreas writes in, I have an issue here and I really need your help. In the attempt to not get caught, very wise, I set up a firmware password on my 13-inch MacBook Pro early 2011 running 10.8.3 and 16 gigs of RAM. Cool. 
Then I went to try it out by holding down the option key. Okay. And for those of you that don't know, the option key uh, activates something on the Mac. Uh, Yes. But when you boot your machine, what it's actually activating is something called the startup manager. And what it's going to do is show all of the bootable drives, whether they be internal or external. Now, you may have to wait a bit for external drives to show up, but eventually all the drives that are bootable will show up on your screen. And then you can pick one of them. Uh, for most recent machines, what you're going to see is your hard drive and something called recovery, right? So here's the bad news. Uh, if, well, no, not the bad news, but if you have firmware password protection enabled, uh, this is uh, the, the, you will be asked for that password first. And that's a, that's a security measure because allowing people to boot directly into your, one of your partitions may not be what you want. Unfortunately, here's what happened. And I think I know what happened, but um. So we tried to log in, didn't have any luck, and uh, the password field just went blank, which is what happens if you type in the wrong password. So we called up Apple, since they do not have an Apple store, at least an Apple retail store in Denmark, and they said I should bring it somewhere to have it reset. Then I got thinking because my keyboard is Danish. uh, So so we thought it was a language problem. I don't think it's a language or mapping of characters problem. I mean, we typed in at one point should be the same. So, So I don't think it was an issue though. He, he did note that there are some characters that are uh, different on the Danish and English keyboard. So I think he made the attempt to take what he thought was the password and switch in those characters still didn't work. Hmm. Now, um, all right. He also looked up on Apple support communities saying, and this is the bad news kind of Dave. So uh, some articles on Apple support communities say that you can reset the firmware password in, in uh, portables, I guess, or pretty much any Mac, I guess, by removing the RAM and doing a PRAM reset. Yep. And I, I remember point, that in the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I saw something saying that it wouldn't work with later Macs. And yes, I found that as well. So, um, you know, as far as I see here, Dave, so, so what I found... Uh, and actually, Apple echoes this here. And uh, let me let me get the link here. So actually, things have changed uh, since you could do the remove the RAM and reset PRAM trick, which was kind of a trick. I think it was right. an oversight, actually, in how they implemented this. Um, so I guess Apple heard about this and they fixed it, which I think is a good thing, <laughs> unless you can't get back. But basically, here I found an article and the title is, uh, and it gives a number of machines here, one of them being the uh, MacBook Pro early 2011, which he stated he has. And basically they say the resolution to uh, recovering a lost firmware password is the title of the article. And basically what they say is if this happens, you have to go to an Apple retail store. Okay, that's bad since he doesn't have one, but also an Apple authorized service provider can unlock this. And I actually did a bit of digging and apparently what's involved in this process is you actually start up the machine and then I think you have to do a quadruple handstand no what you have to do is and i saw a youtube video of this if you hold down i think it's control option command shift s you get this big long hex code and that's something that's unique to that machine what happens is then the apple authorized service provider sends that to uh, apple server somewhere and then they get back a file that they then toss on the hard drive and that effectively resets it wow so it's having to do with uh, i think encryption that involves the you want to talk about uh, multi-factor be, authentication. Holy cow. Yeah. Realized. So what they're doing, and I think they're using, I read also they're using like an Atmel chip or something. So they're using a chip that's meant to be secure and that you can't reset like you could in the past year, but it's tied to whether it be a Mac address or, or a serial number or something, it's definitely tied to something that's unique in that machine. And that if you get this file back, if you try to put it on 
a machine that doesn't match, it, it won't work. Got so it. now I did send them. So, so the first thing here is I'll toss this in the room here. So here's that article saying you're out of luck. The second thing though, is that there is a finder here or, or a, a, a dealer finder, I guess, or Apple authorized service provider thing. So if you go to locate.apple.com and then you, you go a little further, it, it'll let you find people in a particular country. And I got to imagine, I mean, Denmark isn't like in the middle of nowhere. I mean, they got to have at least one. Oh yeah. <laughs> authorized Apple server. So, so not a retail store yet. You know, I guess they're getting around to it, but, but they certainly got to have some authorized uh, Apple service providers, which can have the magic tools that will accomplish this. Uh, you know what I think could have happened, David? I've actually had this happen once and thank goodness for things like, uh, so I use LastPass, um, which is very one password like. Um, I actually Ish. had an occasion where I actually did log into a site um, and thought I had typed in one password and LastPass had captured it and it said, oh yeah, I saw you logged in somewhere. You want to save that? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And then when I tried to log in at a later date and I thought I had memorized the password, as it turns out, <laughs> I had transcribed two of the characters for some reason of what I thought I typed in. And I only realized this after I had last pass. I'm like, what is wrong? I, I'm almost positive. I typed whatever. Yeah. And when I went to last pass and said, show me what I typed in, I'm like, Oh, that's not what I thought I typed in. Right. Huh? Very cool. So it could have been a, a inadvertent brain hiccup. And I don't know if transcribing two of the characters, I mean, he, he included, uh, you know, I think what is close to the password that was used. And it certainly looks, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I uh, we, we I know you use LastPass and I use one password. So I'm I, I like that because it allows us to talk about different features of the software without any assumptions being made. So one of the things I found on iOS now with uh, with the one password app, the current version, and I don't know what version that is. I don't it doesn't want to tell me I, I don't want to look. It's really what it comes down to. But anyway. Um, and the previous version had this too, where it's got a web browser built into it and it seems a little crazy, but more and more I find myself using it because if I go to a website, I have, I have two ways of logging into a website on my iPhone. If I don't know the password in memory, right? Number one is I visit the website on Safari because that's, you know, the default browser and that's where it always brings me. And then I, um, and I realize I'm on a tangent, but that's okay. And then I, I have to jump over to the one password app, look up my password, uh, you know, maybe copy it to the clipboard, clipboard, type my username, paste the password in if it lets me and then log in. And now I'm logged in in Safari and, and maybe Safari will ask to memorize the password at that point. Maybe it won't. I don't know. Uh, so that's one way. The other way is to just copy the URL uh, and then go to one password and go to the browser in one password, paste the URL in. And then uh, it visits the page. And because I'm now in one password, uh, I have a little button at the bottom that lets me log in uh, and use the logins. I don't have to remember or pay or, you know, copy anything. And then it works. And so I'm finding myself using one password far more as the browser when I need to do things that require me to log in. And then I know that some of you are banging on your steering wheels uh, if you're driving at this point saying, Dave, Dave, there's a better way. And you're right. You don't even have to copy the URL from Safari. You can just go up to the URL bar and type OP at the very beginning of the uh, of the URL bar. So it says instead of HTTP colon slash slash or HTTPS colon slash slash. And now it says OP HTTP. And of course, OP is for one password. 
and you put that at the beginning and it automatically jumps over to the one password app. So you don't even need to, to copy the URL. So what I'm, what I'm getting at here, John, is I wind up using the browser in one password a ton when I need to interact with sites that I need to log into. And so my question for you is, can you approximate that functionality in LastPass on your iOS device? I believe you can, but I don't think I'm set up to do that. Okay. I do have a LastPass iOS app. will will, will let me log into my account and view all of these sites that are registered, uh, including, so if I'm on the road and I don't happen to be near a computer with the LastPass, LastPass plugin installed, I can take my iPhone and run the app and see what the password is there. Username and password is there. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think they have an advanced package, which I don't think I have installed, that will do the auto login stuff as well. Okay. Okay. I mean, it certainly does it on, on Safari or uh, Firefox. Not Chrome, I don't think. I don't think they have a Chrome. Uh, on, on your Mac. You Correct. Mean. But, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I do not presently have similar functionality set up on my uh, iOS device. Got it. Yeah, it's really handy. And, you know, it's funny. I don't in, impose technology on on my wife, Lisa, all that often, uh, you know, because because and this actually goes back to my consulting days. I I had some nerds that worked for me. I call them nerds because the name of the company was Computer Nerds. Um, and uh, and so we had nerds that worked for us and I'd get complaints from customers all the time saying, oh, you know, so and so came out and he or she installed all this stuff because they said I would like it, but really they liked it, but it's not for me, you know, and now my computer's all crazy. So, um, so I never did that. You know, it, it's just, just not a habit of mine. I'd set my computer up my way, but other people, I just kind of try and facilitate what they want to do. And, uh, but the other day I noticed Lisa was like fighting with stuff. And I said, wait a minute, you know, you have one password on the computer. She's like, yeah, I mainly only use that for work stuff. I'm like, yeah, but you're out and about with your iPad mini now a ton. I said, there is a better way. And so I set it up for her and showed it to her. And she's like, this is going to change my world. Like, yeah, I know. She's like, Oh, this is great. And now she uses it all the time. So, and, and it's cool because one password will sync, um, either with iCloud amongst your iOS devices or, um, or Dropbox amongst everything. So I don't think the Mac version will do iCloud syncing yet, but it'll certainly do Dropbox and, and the data is not all that big. So you can get a free Dropbox account and, and do it that way. So, Oh, where the heck are we going now? Um, well, yeah, Anthony. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, this is good. Um, this is sort of a, a not cool stuff found. I, I think, I mean, it's, you know, anyway, Anthony writes, can you have a look at the Mac app iCloud drive from Zibity, Z-I-B-I-T-Y.com? I don't think this is a safe way to use your data on iCloud as it is messing with iCloud files. So essentially, uh, I'll finish what he's saying. Uh, it's messing with your iCloud files on your Mac and basically backdooring the process, making iCloud like iDisk or Dropbox, but certainly not the way Apple intended any of this to work. I like the idea, but I'm scared of the repercussions. So, yeah, what uh, iCloud Drive does is, you know, we've talked about this before. You have this mobile documents folder uh, buried in your library folder on your on your Mac. And if that folder is synced amongst all of the devices uh, and Macs that are logged into that i uh, iCloud account. And this, I believe, uh, if Anthony's description is right, 
is it's just using that folder to, to make this syncing happen, but it, it's giving you better access to it and sort of letting you use your uh, iCloud like a Dropbox. And like we've said before, you can do this. And as of today, this works perfectly. However, this is 100% not documented or supported or even encouraged uh, by Apple. So what it means is down the road, Apple may change the way iCloud manages that folder and might say delete anything that's not part of anything from that folder. That's not part of an app that has registered itself as part of this process. And, um, and so, you know, be careful, I guess is the, uh, is the, is the way I would, I would go about this. So, uh, it, but it is cool, you know, being able to use it like this and interact with it a little more easily than having to dig and, and all that good stuff. So, you know, maybe it's cool stuff found. Maybe it's a warning. I don't know. It's iCloud drive. Mm-hmm. So there you go. What do you think of it, John? Uh, I'm sure after, drive? I'm sure after they hear this discussion, uh, which they will, I'll, I'll, I'll alert them to it. They'll, they may have some, some additional thoughts and, and might even be able to make us feel a little better about it. So but on the surface, how do you feel? Uh, I don't know about this undocumented stuff, you know? Well, I guess my question is, you know, as I was explaining it here, here's the thing. It's possible. This is using an entirely documented solution, oh, right? Because, yeah. because think about this, right? I can have pages run, and pages can store files in iCloud. Now, what that means, and, and you and I know this in the background, is it's just saving these files in a place in this mobile documents folder. And then it gets synced to my other Mac and then pages can read it. And so we're used to thinking of iCloud, the prescribed usage being for apps to share documents with the same app on another Mac. But this iCloud drive is just an app, right? So it's just giving you uh, more uh, transparent access to the files mm. that it is syncing on its own behalf. Right. So if iCloud drive has registered itself with iCloud and said, yep, I want to just store some files. iCloud doesn't care how it gets those files. Right. I mean, in pages, it gets them because you've created them and, and saved them there, but who cares if you copy them in, right? What, what's the difference? So maybe that's how it works and maybe it's totally fine. Right. If it's doing it all through, you know, the way it's supposed to do it, Great. If it's sort of doing it through a backdoor, which is what Anthony presumed and I presumed actually initially, then that's where it starts to get a little sketchy. So who knows? Maybe maybe there's maybe it's totally on the up and up and it's just using file store or whatever. There was that big article that Rich Siegel kind of wrote for Ars Technica this week or, you know, ish about his frustrations with with I, with uh, iCloud syncing. But um but there's essentially three ways to do it. And one is through core storage, but and that that's what he's having a problem with. But the file storing thing is pretty straightforward. So maybe that's all it's doing. So if that, in that case, then it's probably pretty cool. I don't cool. know. Yeah. You want to take right. one, John? Felix. Go. This took a little head scratching. We like head scratching. But I'm, ha- but I'm happy with the answer I came up with here. So... Felix says, hi, guys. I sometimes get the error message saying that the volume was not ejected properly. However, I often don't know which drive actually was ejected. How can I find out which drive was ejected? So two ways to do this. 
the easy way and the hard way <laughs> or the cheapskate way and the, the give somebody some money way. So, so the way to do it with the tools at your disposal, if you are not afraid of the terminal and don't be afraid of the terminal, uh, you got to do some work ahead of time here. And that's the only caveat with this, uh, the, this technique here. But one thing that you can do, I'm thinking if I should work this backwards. No, I'm going to work forwards. So you need to get some information first. Discutil list is the command that you want to issue in the terminal. And as you may suspect, well, this is disutility. It's just a command line version. So you can, you can, it's information that's available in disutility, but it, it may be arranged in a nicer way for you, or you can just do it quicker. So you type this out and then what you're going to see is a list um, on the left you will see the Unix devices that all of your volumes are connected to. And in my case, I had two, dev disk zero and dev disk one. Dev disk zero being the drive in my MacBook and disk one being another disk, in this case, a USB disk. And then to the right, this is the important part. What you're going to see in the far right column of this list is something called an identifier. And this also harks back to the uh, Unix device descriptor. So you're going to see what you see on the left column, disk zero, but then you're going to see the partitions on the drive. And they're going to be of the format like disk zero S1, disk zero S2, disk zero S3, and so on. S, I believe, being a slice. In case you were wondering what the S stood for, I think that's what it stands for, or it sounds as good as anything. <laughs> And then what's going to happen if you then, and I did this at great peril and risk, I then took my USB flash drive, which is a Lexar 128 gigabyte, which I love to death, and pulled it out without ejecting it. And then I looked in the kernel to see if there was anything upsetting the kernel. And yes, there was. There was a message from kernel saying disk one S1 media is not present. And uh, I think that's basically the same thing as the eject message. It's like, hey, what happened? <laughs> So, and it said disk one S one. Well, what is disk one S one? Well, if I look in the list that I just generated, Hey, it's the name of it is Lexar type windows fat 32. So that's how you can work your way backwards. Assuming that you have a list or, you know, because I think typically all your partitions are going to get, if you plug them into the same port are going to get the same disk one S one uh, or whatever. I don't, I don't know what I'd get I don't think I it's ports. I think US. it's order. Okay, it could be. So if I plugged yeah. in my other USB port, it probably still would be disk one. But if I plugged in another disk ahead of time, then that would be disk one. So so it changes based. Uh, yeah, I, I think I'm with you on that. So yeah. it changes based on the order and device in which devices were inserted. At least that seems to make sense. Yeah. Uh, the other way to do this is to get a tool that I like, and it's only a, f a few bucks, I think, right now. Uh, and that's called Hardware Growler, because Hardware Growler, if you pull a drive, uh, it'll show you in a little growl window both of these events occurring, both that a USB device disconnected, and then at a higher level, it'll give you the name of it. And in my case, it said, because the name of the drive is Lexar, it said, yeah, Lexar went away. So I think hardware growler is an excellent tool, especially if you are having issues with the, because to me, this sounds like something to be concerned about in that normally you shouldn't be getting these ejected properly messages unless you have people you know, approaching your machine and just yanking USB peripherals at random, which I hope you don't. That's another problem. So, so either go to the terminal or hardware growler are the, are the two ways you can determine. But again, Dave, this I have, a, I have a third way, you know, and you don't oh. have to, you don't have to go to the terminal and you don't have to install oh. any third party software. 
No way. No way. You Hit run me. disk utility, the, the GUI version or the GUI wrapper mm-hmm. to it, I should say. And it's a little more manual a process, but uh, or a little more pedantic a process. But what you do is you go and highlight your uh, your disks and it, it in, in disk utility itself right there. It shows you the mount point, but doesn't show you the disk anymore. It used to show you the disk and slice. But now you can hit the little info button or go to the file menu and choose get info. And that will show you the disk identifier uh, of that mm. particular disk. So you can jump from disk to disk and find out which of these uh, that is. So. So there you go. Yet another way to uh, to get this this stuff. Yep. And it looks like in our chat room, we have a number of people who uh, before they knew I'd say hardware growler said, hey, how about hardware growler? That's right. Well, you've turned everybody onto it. It's, uh, you know, I probably should use release. release well, the latest release also includes a higher level of granularity. So you can break out Bluetooth devices, mm. USB devices, network devices. The other thing I find it very handy for is to find out when software is doing like a secret background update, which for the most part only seems to be Google stuff like Chrome and all that. Yeah. And that you'll see these disk image or you'll see disks being mounted with an alert from growl, a hardware growler. And you're like, um, I don't remember asking for this. <laughs> it's a bit disconcerting that you all of a sudden in the background see a volume getting mounted. If I didn't know it was uh, how Google does their software update, that would really kind of concern me greatly. Sure. Yeah. 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 Oh, that makes sense. But now right. having it, it makes sense when I see this happen. Uh, so they'll leave, it's either Chrome. I think uh, sometimes they'll update the AV components for their telephony and uh, some other things, but okay. No, it's good. All right. So, uh, it is World Backup Day. So, uh, and I realize that this is just a, a construct. I think it was a, a group of Redditors, right? People on Reddit that that started this. And it wasn't that long ago, maybe four years ago, something like that. But anyway, it's, it's, it's good to build awareness of backups. Um, so we, we, regardless of the genesis of the holiday, we will, we will celebrate it happily and emphatically here. Uh, so with, with that, John, let's, let's both just go, go through our, our backup strategies and, uh, and, and, and then I'm sure that will lead to a tangent or two and we'll have a nice little, you know, seven to 10 minute detour here on, uh, on, on our backups. And hopefully that helps to enlighten uh, folks that haven't heard us talk about it. New listeners that haven't heard us talk about our backup strategy and also uh, existing listeners. It, you know, it doesn't help. It doesn't hurt. In fact, I'm looking forward to this because I like to reevaluate things from time to time as well. So, uh, so John, we'll, we'll, let's start with you. Go ahead. What, what my backup strategy yeah. is? Yeah. <sighs> All right. So, uh, well, I've talked about the devices that I have first. So it's uh, the Mac Mini. Yep. MacBook Pro. And I would, I would say the third primary one uh, would be the uh, iPhone. Right. Okay. I'm pretty much uh, on both of the uh, Macs. I have Time Machine running and they're both targeting the uh, Drobo with a special uh, time machine uh, partition. Okay. So that's uh, stage one. Uh, the only thing in that case is I will exclude rather large items that I don't feel need to be backed up. Uh, and I guess the, the main one is, uh, you know, I'll play some Steam games. And the thing is, uh, whenever they, they change or update, I mean, the updates can be huge, like on the order of gigabytes. Yeah. So I'm like, eh, well, I don't really need to update that, do I? Because they store all your account stuff in the cloud. So 
and some other things like a, a virtual, uh, a lot of times virtual discs with uh, m- uh, virtual machines. Those tend to get backed up in one fell swoop. Or no, they, they don't actually. Been. It's it. it I've, it. I've seen it happen. I think the, the, the type of image that I chose when I've done virtual uh. box work. But no, you're right. No, it's good to discuss is that depending on the type of disc image that you choose, it may not separate itself into bands or stripes or whatever, That's in which right. case. Yeah, no, you're right. Anytime you change it, but yeah, but you're right is that I think the the default that things like parallels and VMware set it up for, they have it in stripes so that it only backs up what has changed down to a certain level. Right. Uh, Right. But it's better granularity than backing up an entire 20 gigabyte (laughs) virtual disk image. Yeah, right. Which is what I feed. Yeah. Um, so basically I do that and then I will use uh, the cloud services that I have right now. I would say the ones that I primarily use are, um, Dropbox and SugarSync, and I will back up uh, typically. So, so one, you got to think about how do you organize your data? And I would say any any data that is important, I will store in the documents folder, which is really where you should. Well, I find it makes life easier. So what I do is I, uh, I have important documents of various sorts on both machines, and uh, I will use either Dropbox uh, or I actually like leaning towards SugarSync because actually, no, Dropbox, uh, I'd say is probably not the best solution for this. Dropbox, I think is still, uh, I use it primarily to do sharing with uh, other people, not so much for backups these days. Where SugarSync, I think, tends to lend itself to backing up specific folders on different machines. It's not kind of this group thing right. that Dropbox embraces. So, and I would say that's really... Oh, the third one. All right. So the third backup solution I have. So I told you about this Lexar drive that I love to death and it's 120 gigabytes. So that's pretty substantial uh, space. And I think it's only like a hundred bucks. Well, it comes with backup software that runs not only on Mac and different Macs, but Windows. And what happens is, so the first time you get it, you install this backup software, which I think is done by a third party. And then basically you set up a backup profile and say, okay, anytime this drive is stuck in here, They'll have this thing called the, I think, Lexar Backup Manager. And it says, hey, I see you. I know who you are. Oh, you told me to back up your documents folder every time I see you? Okay. Cool. And it just starts backing up to it. And the write speed on it is pretty good. So you probably don't want to back up everything, but for critical documents. So what I'm embracing here with this backup strategy is, so one is to, duh, just do a backup. That That's pretty, should be pretty clear. But number two, you should really try to have more than one backup of anything that's important to you. Uh, what we call, we like to call single point of failure. And if you only have it in one place and that melts down or explodes, you're out of luck. So if something's important to you, like I'm doing, so I'll put it on both a thumb drive and it backs it up onto the Drogo with the time machine and it's on the thumb drive. So I got three backups of uh, my important documents. And I think that's probably enough. All right. <laughs> uh, there is one that you missed um, that I know you'll say, oh, I use that too. And that's crash plan because I know you always turn crash plan off right before um, we start recording that geek cab. Um, not anymore. Oh, all right. Fair enough. Okay. Well, they, they threw, they threw me a, a freebie and it just yelled at me for expiring. And I, I think it may be redundant Dave in that I think I've already got, I mean, it's certainly a nice product. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I really like it, but I'm yeah. They sent me a thing basically saying, "Yeah, your free your free is uh, up." And uh, yours expired last night, just like mine did, actually. Um, yeah, so I'm. I, uh, I wasn't smart enough to re up my crash plan. You know, they're they're a sponsor, obviously, of of the show in general. Not this not this episode particularly, but um, <sighs> but uh, you know, they had that great deal and everything, and uh, and I was foolish and didn't re up mine. But uh, so I have it on one machine now, crash plan. And and actually, the machine that I have CrashPlan running on 
is my disk station where I store all our movies and everything like that. So I probably need to enhance that into a family plan, but it just happened like seven hours ago um, that my crash plan expired. So, Oh, no, oh another one, 10 hours, 11 hours ago. Oh, okay. okay. This, Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I just saw in the chat room, someone mentioned something which uh, I didn't think of off the top of my head, but, and I don't use it frequently, but when I do, this is always the tool that I use. And that is a uh, carbon copy cloner. Okay. So whenever I am doing a, system upgrade like a major system upgrade like operating system or something like that i will do a full um backup of the entire drive with carbon copy cloner because i want a bootable one yes because if the upgrade fails for some reason then that means i have one less bootable device <laughs> right and thank goodness that you can you know and this has always been the thing with the mac that has really amazed me is that the flexibility within which you can boot an external drive that has the operating system on it is pretty seamless. And I certainly, even now with windows seven, I still haven't found that to be the case with windows is that you can't just plug in a USB drive and boot from it. If it has a bootable image, not an image. That's right. It has to have a bootable partition. That's right. Well, even then I, I think the, the support for booting from an external device is still not as, Oh, it works. Not what. Okay. Any Intel machine can boot from USB. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I haven't tried it lately yeah. in, 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 back in the, yeah, I've, uh, I'll, I'll have to investigate how to get that happening with my windows seven installation. Oh um, yeah. Windows. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure. I see what I'm saying is that the, the, the it, whereas a Mac OS 10 volume tends to have all the kernel extensions and all the, the stuff that you need to boot properly right. on pretty much any Mac, maybe sometimes missing a few features if, if you don't have all the same kernel extensions, but I found that it does a much better job than something that's kind of specific to a, a windows machine. Yep. I'll have to re revisit it. Yeah, no, you're right with windows. It might not. I I'm, I'm with you on that. All right. So, uh, uh, so I'll go in a slightly different order just because that's how my brain works. Um, I start with the clone super duper runs every night at six thirty PM clones my main hard drive which is my ssd in the imac at the office clones that to a partition on the my my imac has the ssd and the one terabyte drive this is pre-fusion drive days so they are not bonded together they're two separate disks um and treated that way so it clones my my ssd to a partition on the one terabyte disk which is really really handy it gives me that immediately bootable clone if i ever need it and uh, and i'm good to go and so I have that for that backup. Then I have time machine running on all the machines and time machine either backs up, you know, the office and the house are separate. So the machines that are in the office in the studio, which is one building back up to the time capsule, which lives over at the house and all the machines at the house use time machine to back up to the Drobo FS, which lives over here in the office. So that way, it's not a really an offsite backup, but it would take quite a bit for both of these buildings to burn simultaneously. It would be, I would have much bigger problems uh, if, if that were to happen. So anyway, that's, that's, that's sort of round one. And then, um, and then like you, John, I use a variety of different, you know, what I'll call cloud-based services. Um, Dropbox, like you, I started with it and used it for everything uh, because it was the first but now it pretty much is relegated to only sharing with people that don't have any other service other than Dropbox and slowly, but surely all of those people are moving to different things. And some of those things are things like sugar sync is a decent cloud-based service. And for a long time, 
Uh, when I moved from Dropbox to SugarSync, I, I stored all my documents there so I could have all my docs on all my Macs. And then about a year ago, when I got my uh, Synology disk station, uh, maybe I think it was a year ago, I moved everything into a product they have called Cloud Station, which is their own version of personal cloud. Um, and and so all of my machines, including my iOS devices and everything, sync documents to Cloud Station, which stores my stuff on the disk station. It took a little bit to set it up and all of that stuff, but I'm a geek. And I like this stuff. So um, so I, I've been managing my own cloud for a while here. And I really like that because I like the fact that my documents aren't being stored with like Dropbox where any or SugarSync where anybody can can or not anybody. But, you know, uh, I, I call I call those services secure until a subpoena. Now, I, it's not that I expect a subpoena to be coming, but uh, but, you know, if if someone forces their hand. They can get at my data at Dropbox and SugarSync because it's all encrypted with their key, not my key, my password, their key. So, uh, so I use, I use the personal cloud thing here. And then as I mentioned, I use crash plan. Now up until last night, I had crash plan running on a couple of my machines. Cause I had a family account that like you, John, they had given us about a year ago. And then uh, on Friday, I got the notification that, Oh yeah, it's going to expire. And I thought, Oh, Okay. Um, and so I signed up for, a, a one year account for just the one machine, which is the disc station that has all of our movies. I don't back up all of our movies to crash plan cause it would take forever, but, um, but I back up some of the more important ones and everything that's in my personal cloud and all of that stuff gets backed up to crash plan using my encryption key. So secure past a subpoena, uh, and uh, and it's fully encrypted with my stuff. And so that goes up to to the cloud. And uh, and then lately I've been Pete, like I said, Pete and I have been messing with the concept of uh, seeding Drobos with crash plan data that we then swap. And so my stuff will back up to Pete's house and Pete's stuff will back up here. I've been having a problem because I, I had this re- image that I could take my old, you know, Firewire and USB based Drobo, hang it USB off of my disk station and back up directly to it. And that has been fraught with error. The, the, the Linux HFS plus drivers that are baked into the disk station aren't quite ready for a disk of this size. And so it's been causing a lot of grief. So now I've got that trouble hanging off of my iMac in the office, but it, I just don't like that because it's not as pretty and efficient to do it that way, but it is working. So I'm seeding that drive. Um, and that has everything on the disk station, including all of the movies and everything from all of my Macs is, is syncing crash plan. You know, you can, you can, their pay service is the storage in the cloud. You can back up to your other computers, be they local on the network or elsewhere um, for, for essentially for free. And so that's sort of what I'm doing here is I have them all backing up to this one drive and then I'm going to give that drive to Pete and then they will just magically start backing up to the drive uh, when it lives at Pete's house. And he attaches it to crash plan. And lastly, only because it's newly uh, is the transporter, which had I had that a year I'm ago, sure. um, I would have immediately adopted that as my personal cloud solution because it's just so easy to use. But uh, but like I said, I, you know, I kind of already had the disk station in place. So that's why I'm using that for my personal cloud. But as far as ease of use and even price, I mean, it, the disk station is massively expensive to just do personal cloud with. Whereas the transporter is, is, you know, cheap and easy. So, um, so, and I'm, I'm using some of that. And in fact, 
you know, I, I, I've been working on some stuff with Dave Wiska's um, songs that we've been recording. He writes the songs and I put drum tracks on them and um, we used Dropbox for the first project. And just last night he asked me, he's like, wait a minute, do you have a, a transporter? I'm like, of course. And he's like, forget Dropbox. We're moving to transporter. I'm like, yep, absolutely. More space, easier to manage. And we're not dealing with, you know, wacky syncing Dropbox problems. So, uh, so, you know, slowly but surely we're kind of moving away from, from that too. So, uh, I think that's, I think that's my backup strategy. That's cool. And I think yeah. it may lead into oh, oh, a question oh. I, here, Dave. I did want to say one thing, uh, mm. uh, two things actually it would, number one is when you mentioned you were excluding large things like your disc images and all that stuff. I, I do that. But I also exclude things, you know, I'm backing up a lot of computers and three of them, four of them are computers that I log into regularly. The one in the studio, the one in the office, the iMac in the house and my MacBook Air. These, com these computers are also used by other people at times, but they all have my accounts on them. They all have my mail. They all have my Dropbox. They all have my sugar sink. And I think you see where I'm going here from my main iMac in the office. I let it back up everything. But here in the studio, I exclude my mail folder, my Dropbox folder my sugar sink folder from being backed up to the time machine, because I would simply be storing, you know, four copies of that same data in my, um, you know, on my time machine backups. And I certainly don't need to do that. So, so I exclude that stuff too. And to exclude mail, that's sort of the one that's a little wacky. Um, you, you would exclude your home slash library slash mail folder. Um, so that's, that's how I do that. And one last thing, John, if I may, may I? You may. Okay. Um, Dolly drive. It would, we would be remiss in, in having a backup discussion without mentioning Dolly drive. And the reason is, you know, these guys have created a one-stop shop for pretty much, you know, doing everything that you'd want to do it. They started out as just time machine in the cloud, They've actually walked away from that. They do not use Time Machine anymore because Time Machine was never built to be used in the cloud. It was really never built to be used with HFS Plus, but, you know, whatever. Um, we won't go into that. Uh, so they, they now have their own engine, which is way more reliable than, than, you know, hanging it off of Time Machine. But they also do, uh, they'll, they'll, their software will create a local clone. Their software will let you do cloud sharing and storage like we're talking about here. Uh, it, it, they've got a whole range of things and you really could do multi-tiered backups with just Dolly drive um, because it's, you know, it's just software managing. It's kind of all in one, if you will. So I throw that out there too. That's all I got. You said you were going to say something, John, sorry. Uh, suggestion for a direction to take here. So one, I'm just looking at my, uh, my mini here and yeah, steam, steam tapes takes up about 30 gigs. With all the various games. So yeah, I don't need to back that up because I can just download it again. All right. Now I was thinking the direction, I don't know if we want to touch on Paul here because it kind of relates to uh, backups and I don't know if I have any answer. Which one's this? I get a pause. Paul. Yeah, the, 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 the drives one. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead and bring it up. Yeah, because it's a good follow up and, and we can wrap up that discussion from a couple of weeks ago. Sure. And, and we'll do Paul and then we'll do, uh, and then we'll do John. Uh, because, because that's definitely related, uh, the one toward the bottom. And then I think we're done. So go ahead. Yeah. Take Paul. Yeah. Or at least I'll try to address it here. So, um, 
Hey guys, from Paul. I know you mentioned Seagate Green Drive's failing in one of your NAS devices that houses all the show's archive data. I'm a network manager that recently had a nightmare experience with Western Digital Caviar Green Drives that are eco-friendly and supposed to keep power consumption costs down. Uh, let's see. I want to try to summarize this. So uh, basically, someone else had built the RAID arrays and thought it'd be a good idea to use the uh, green drives. Just, uh, like, green we, drives just being, like you and I did. In yeah, our drill well, green drives and, being yeah. drives that I guess are specially made to consume less power. Mm-hmm. Uh, which to me sounds like a great thing if you can, uh, you know, do it properly. And that's why I put them in my, in my NAS drives, because I, I really, with my NAS, I don't care as much about the speed. So if the drives are a little bit crippled speed wise, but use less power, fine. It's archival storage. I, you know, slow data. So go ahead, John. Mm -hmm. Sorry. And he says, what a mess. As soon as I began to support the servers, I found out that the drives in the onboard raid were spewing alerts saying there was raid degradation. The green drives are failing left and right. When in reality, there was nothing wrong. A drive would show us offline and you would have to pull the drive, test it, find it operational, introduce it back into the RAID set and pray it worked. It never did. I eventually started to swap out those green drives for WD black drives. I don't know, so the caviar, just the regular drives and uh, PCI RAID connectors bypassing the onboard RAID. So I guess the summary here is that uh, at least in Paul's case, he had a problem that it sounds like he attributed uh, and I guess he got correlation that yes, in fact it was, well, I don't know. It sounds like he said he was changing the raid approach as well. So well, he's changing the raid approach because the, because he can't rely on these green drives, I think is, is All right, sort of working, the, working with the initial raid solution. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. So yeah, it covers so, two things here. So uh, to me, it's, uh, I mean, I'm kind of scratching my head here. I mean, I, be, I certainly believe what you and uh, what both of you said, as far as the, these green drives uh, getting temperamental in certain raid enclosures. But, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with how power management, and maybe it's just because the drives don't respond as quickly. And the RAID array, whether it be hardware or software, has a certain expectation that, yeah, this drive should be available. Otherwise, I'm going to classify you as failing. And maybe that, that's what's happening. I think that's exactly RAID. I think that's exactly what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the most obvious thing with a green drive is that it's in, it goes in a low power state where it probably spins down the motor and and all of that. And yeah. So, you know, if anything, I would think wouldn't it be nice if the RAID had something either the RAID was smart enough. Hmm. To talk to the drive and the drive maybe has, and I'm sure the drive has a pin or you could ask it. And uh, I'm just thinking that if there was an exchange, like the, the, the array says, Hey drive, you ready? And it's like, Nope, but you know, I'm, I'm working on it. You know, yeah. it's going to take me a while. I'm, I'm, I'm one of these green drives. Can you, can you please wait just a little longer for me to spin up before you, you claim that I'm dead? Right. So it almost to me sounds like it's an unintended. I don't know if the green drives aren't to some spec or the RAID array is, is a bit too hasty in. But of course I've seen this with multiple branded RAID arrays, right? It happened with Drobo and it happened with now. I'm not saying you're wrong. You're probably very right, but, uh, but it's happening with the disc station as well as the Drobo. Now, thankfully for me, the, the disc station would let this happen and keep using the drive. The Drobo, once it happened like two or three times, it was like, Nope, I'm not talking to that drive anymore. Um, so, uh, so thankfully I didn't lose any data. Uh, I wonder if it's the implementation because Dave, so what I got, so I wrote back to Paul and, and, you know, thanked him. And obviously we just discussed this, but, um, once, once I got the FS from the Drobo folks, thank you very much. 
uh, I ordered three per your recommendation of what what they call uh, the Western Digital Caviar Green two yeah. terabyte SATA three IntelliPower sixty four megabyte cache bulk OEM blah blah blah. Uh, and then at a later point, I put in both a two and a one terabyte uh, Hitachi drive yep. that, that I had sitting around. One was one that had previously been in my, my uh, I think, G5. My, then, my uh, issue is because I did the same thing. And, and the issue is that they seem to do totally fine until you start moving massive amounts of data or consistently moving data for, for say a period of 10 hours, right? When I started doing this crash plan seeding, that's when all these problems reared their ugly heads with these green drives. Uh, first on the Drobo that I was writing to, and then on the disc station that I was reading from. And, and that's when things got really ugly. Uh, so it was like, wait a minute, you know, I can rely on these drives and they'll sit there and act like everything's fine. And the rate array won't, won't moan about them right up until the point that I need to actually get lots of data off or onto them. And that's when they start to crater. So that's what, that's kind of what made me, uh, I don't know. Now I did, I warranted them through Seagate and, uh, and they sent them to me and I've actually just finished this morning was when the third one in the, in the disc station, which was the last one, uh, you know, finally got itself up to speed and I'll, you know, ship the old ones back to Seagate. But I, I knew I, you know, it's almost like I know this is going to happen again. Um, but I also know I didn't lose data. It was just inconvenient. Um, but the next time they had, this happens, I, um, it's funny cause I bought the green drives because they were recommended to me, uh, on Drobo's website. Now Drobo has a, uh, which drive do you choose the right drives for your Drobo thing, which we'll put in the, in the show notes. But, um, and I put it in the chat room right now for, for those of you at MacGeekab.com slash stream. But it still says that green drives are good for sort of the low end Drobos, but for none else, they don't recommend them. Uh, but what they do recommend uh, as are red drives. Now, this is a Western digital only uh, concept. Red. Yeah. Yeah. They're called Western digital that's red. Kind of, <laughs> yep. That's kind but of they, funny. Like they're, they're almost like thumbing their nose. Uh, yeah. The green, like, oh yeah, we're going to be the opposite of green. We're going to be red. Right now. So WD still <laughs> sells their green drives like you have, but they also sell these red drives, which were totally built to be used in 24 seven operating environments, you know, built to be in rate arrays, probably as a reaction to, all the issues that people have been having with these green drives. So, so, you know, you don't have to use the red drives. You can just get pro level drives from anyone. Uh, but WD, you know, I mean, it's marketing and it's smart marketing, I think. So red drives, there you go. All right. <clears throat> Let's see how much time do we have? Uh, well, we have enough to do this cause this is the right show to do it. So we were talking about, uh, and we have talked about personal cloud, you know, the, the transporter concept, uh, which is hardware, sort of dedicated hardware for personal cloud only. You can use it for other things, but, you know, by, by and large, that's what it's built for. And then uh, something like the Synology, the disk station that has uh, personal cloud as a feature of the overall raid in their cloud station product or cloud station package, I should say. And, and that works. Uh, but both of these are separate hardware. And John writes, uh, I was a little disappointed that you, I listened to your discussions about this and I was a little disappointed that you didn't cover any non-appliance personal cloud replacements. I've been looking at own cloud, um, and, but I don't see a Mac install for it. And I was wondering if you knew of any personal cloud solutions for OS 10 server that have mobile apps and web access in addition to desktop clients. Uh, 
And in fact, yes, John, the own cloud is the right thing to use. You just didn't uh, search far enough. And I've sent John the link, but, but there is a Mac OS uh, distribution of own cloud. What own cloud is, is an open source uh, personal cloud solution. Uh, it's got file serving. It's got calendar serving. I think it's even got contact sharing, but, uh, but it is open source. There are iOS apps uh, available and they're very robust. I could, and the way I learned about this was there was actually an own cloud package available for my disk station when cloud station was kind of early on. So I messed with it a little bit and then just went with cloud station because it, it worked, um, it worked fine for me. And I figured it would have better, more regular support from Synology though own cloud, you know, like any open source thing that lots of people use it, it probably is being updated more frequently than even than cloud station is. And their iOS app works great. Uh, and you can install it. You don't even need OS 10 server. You just need OS 10. So you could install this on your Mac and it's accessible not only from your local network, but from the outside world. And of course, the server is free. It's open source. The iOS apps, I think are, you got to pay for, but it's, I mean, it's cheap. It's less than five bucks for the app. So it's not a big deal. And, um, and then you're using your own storage and, and all of that stuff. So, um, so own cloud is, uh, is the trick you, you would need. In order for own cloud to work, uh, you need something, you need Apache running on your Mac and you need PHP running on your Mac, which is a, um, a language for real time applications to run on the web. And then you need MySQL because that's a database backend and it uses that for some things. Now you can install each of these. Some of them are installed on your Mac automatically uh, and you can install each of these manually because it's just Unix. And if you're comfortable doing that, that's great. But an easier solution is to install something called MAMP, uh, M-A-M-P, which is MySQL, a Mac version of a uh, Mac uh, package of Apache, MySQL, and PHP, M-A-M-P. <coughs> Excuse me. So um, I missed the cough button on that one. So uh, so you install MAMP and then you install OwnCloud. And in fact, there is a... Um, a link that describes this whole process. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's my story and I'm sticking with it. So, uh, and it, it goes very, very easily. So, so yes, you can do personal cloud on your Mac. If you, if you're willing to, to go through a little bit of that. And I think there's another one that we haven't mentioned as of late, Dave, and actually I haven't really used uh, recently, but I'm reviving it right now on my Mac mini. And that is a service called Pogo plug. Okay. And I think that's close to what you're looking for here because so I'm running the app right now. I'm logged in uh, through Safari and what it shows in the left-hand column of the, uh, the web app here is JB Mac mini and JB MacBook pro, which are my, two computers and yep. then Pogo Pug cloud. And last I use it, unless they change something, uh, one of the nice things it does if you install their app is allows you to share your machine uh, as a, uh, I would say a personal cloud. So I think Pogo plug, uh, is certainly worth a look. Huh? Cool. I don't know. Have you done, uh, you ever dabble with, uh, no, you had you had done so. I thought there was something limiting about Pogo Plug in this regard, but maybe um. 
Oh, that, well, because, because I don't, I think you're storing your stuff in their cloud. I, I don't think you're, I mean, cause it's a pay service, right? You got to pay five bucks a month. And, uh, and I think at some point your data is stored mm. with them. Yeah, I gotta gotta read through. Uh, yeah, the I'm not convinced because I'm not paying him anything, and I can access my stuff uh, remotely stored on my uh, machine. So, huh? Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I, I would I would be curious to I, like for some reason I thought there was a, a weird. It was that a, I I guess what I understood it to be is a hybrid approach, but but maybe I'm wrong. So that yeah, research and let us know because this would be you know, a good thing for this kind of ongoing conversation. Yeah, I mean, they're saying here, yes, you can, you can store your data in our cloud or on your own device. So it sounds like they're, they're. I, okay. Both. So there's, there's Pogo plug and then there's Pogo plug PC and PC. It sounds like PC is what you have. Mm -hmm. So yeah. All right, cool. More stuff. Fun. We love it. All right. What else do we have? I think, I think we, I think what we have is that the, the show is, uh, is coming to a close today because mm. I think we're, 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 we're pushing our limits here despite the fact that it's a holiday. So it's time to bring the band in, John. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that was fun. Uh, let's see. Wrapping up the last day of March, the seventh Sunday. Sorry. This, did I say the seventh? Why did I say that? The fifth Sunday of March. What do we have? What else do we have to say here, John? Um, I got one thing to say. <laughs> I have no idea what that's going to be. Go. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com is the email address that you write to if you would like to submit questions, tips, praise, criticism, uh, joke of the day, uh, inspirational messages. Um, yeah, that, that, that's where you send it. That's it. Co uh, you can send cookies. Yes, that's right. Or brownies, or I like or brownies. Eggs. I like brownies, but I, I, you know, they make those pans that have like the the, the windy pans so that you get oh, all you were edges. Talking about this. Yeah, mm. I actually don't like edges on brownies at all. I want a pan that has no edges. Um, but thankfully, uh, my wife loves the edges, so we are very compatible in this way. Good. Oh, the edge pieces. Yeah. yeah. I don't like the crunchy. If I want crunchy, I eat a cookie. It's impossible. You can't not have edges. Dude, don't say it's impossible. We could somehow suspend this thing while it's being baked. Okay, so it doesn't have like the pan edge. There's a way. I know there's a way. It's going to involve a lot of technology and it's going to cost a fortune. But there's a way. <laughs> What else? But you did hear the address that I mentioned, Dave, right? Well, you said feedback at MacGeekGab.com, but I was like pie in the sky here. Well, brownie in the sky was sort of where I was. But yes, you did say feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Correct. You know, John. That's not the only. Yeah, go. I was going to say, you can you can call us at 206-666-GEEK, which, John, is? Mm, four. <laughs> three. Three, five. That's right. Uh, <sighs> you can find the show notes that John 
and and actually John and I and and uh, and the people uh, the folks in the chat room lovingly handcraft and then John goes back through them and uh, adds some timestamps and makes them all polished and nice uh, at mattgeekup.com is where those will exist per show or you can find those show notes right there in the app actually at, uh, at the, in the Mac Geek Up app not only can you find the show notes you can listen to the show you get chapters you can send feedback in you can leave bookmarks you can send audio feedback right there from within the app it's actually or you can on uh, when the show is live you can join the chat room and uh, not only chat with others right inside the app but stream the show as well so Yavol. What else do we have here, John? Uh, Facebook.com slash MacGeekab. That we do? You will see notifications when the various uh, forms of the show are posted, when show notes are updated, and uh, more often than not, when the next, uh, uh, the next episode is going to start, if you'd like to tune in on the uh, either, either chat with us or hear the live stream. It's all good. It's all good. Um, did you mention Twitter yet, John? Um, I didn't, but if I did, Dave, I, I would tell you that you can reach or, or you can see what's happening with the show at Mackie Gab. You can see what I'm doing at John Efron, what you're doing at Dave Hamilton, what Pilot Pete is doing at Pilot Pete, and what's happening in the Mac Ecosphere at Mac Observer. That's um, right. The Twitters. Now, along with the Twitters, I, I got to admit, Dave, I haven't really. Uh, uh, well, there's some things happening in this uh, the, this other platform, competing platform called App.net, and I believe Mac Observer has posted. Uh, I don't know if it's a never-ending feed of AppNet codes. But no, it's but it's. I think we still have some. They gave us several hundred to give away, um, and I think we are not quite there yet. So. Um, now we might have hit it. Promo code's no longer valid, unfortunately. So, uh, but if you want an app.net invite, follow us. I know this sounds weird. Follow Mac Geekab on Twitter. And, uh, and occasionally we do get like, we get like five a day that we can give out. We don't always give out five each day, but when I think about it or when John thinks about it, we go and, uh, generate actually, I get them, so it's 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 my account because I have a paid account at app.net. So I get them, I get five a day, but I'm happy to give them out to Mac Geekab listeners, of course. So uh, follow us there, and when I think about it, I'll I, I'll, I'll put out a call and, and you reply to us, and then we DM you with your code, and you're good to go. So <laughs> it's about as active as my G plus. Now you're not following the right people. Seriously, it's it's actually oh, very very active over there. So. Yeah, I, uh, uh, my only problem is I got I have to blend it into my current correct thing, which is basically right now I um I'm on Twitter and I and I mirror my stuff to Facebook and that kind of works for me because I can get notifications via both. I, I haven't I guess I haven't found being a cheapskate. I haven't found the right uh, AppNet client that will also communicate with my other social ah. media platforms, and that right now I just have app.net on my iPhone and I'm typically not really running things on that too too often. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I, I, and actually I've I I think I I've seen the number of people friending me now snowballing which which uh, indicates to me that I think I'm hitting some critical mass or just enough people are seeing that I bothered to check in that now they're like, "Oh, John's there. Okay, let's uh 
Yeah, I've noticed a lot of them. I'm getting a lot of the emails, which I think I'm going to have to well, shut we off put, at some we point. Put your, <laughs> we put your um, app.net ID in our post at TMO. So yes. when people were using that's I think that's where a lot of those new ones this week anyway came from. So. Yeah. Or I just went through the list of followers and I'm like, oh, I know who that is. Yeah. Okay. I'm being a bit more selective. That's good. Well, and they're just trying to add people that I actually know. Yeah, that's a good thing. All right. Uh, I think it's time. I think we can we can roll this one out here. Uh, we Of course, before we do that, we'd like to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast and also from GetAppler.net. He takes this show and converts it to AAC for us and you adding all those chapters and all that good stuff. We'd also like to thank Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com for all the bandwidth that gets the show from us to you. And, of course, the Podcast Marketplace with BB Edit from Barebone Software, Text Expander, and now PDF Pen Pro 6 from Smile. Uh, in addition to Gazelle out there for selling your stuff, Squarespace, and, as mentioned in the show, Crash Plan and Transporter from Connected Data. All through Backbeat Media. John, uh, if you had some advice to share on a day like this, especially a holiday like this, World Backup Day like this, uh, what might that advice be? Well, it might be don't get caught. Yeah. Made up.